Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for our firm's February virtual first Friday free call-in. So happy to have you joining us here this morning. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I have represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for 25 years. Can't believe that. It sure does go by fast. My firm currently represents over a thousand associations, uh, planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also serve on my HOA board and I have for many years, but I've also had a little stint as a disgruntled owner for about two years in there too. So I think I bring a really interesting perspective to teaching these classes. First Fridays are a great way for your associations to have one answer, one question answered at no charge. And here's how First Fridays is going to work today. If you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I'll answer all the questions between now and 10 a.m. Just a quick friendly reminder, we had a lot of questions today. Um, and a lot of people asked two, three, four questions. We also had some associations that had multiple board members asking questions. And we wish we could answer every single question that comes in. But this opportunity is limited to just one question per association. So please don't be mad. We will answer one question for every association. If somebody in your association submitted multiple questions, we just picked one of the questions that we thought would be best representative for everybody who's listening in today. If you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please be sure to include the name of your HOA or condo and your current role when you submit your question. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get started really quickly. First, just a quick overview of what's going on at the legislature. As you know, our legislature has been in session now for just under a month, and we are tracking several community association HOA condo bills in the Arizona legislature right now. Some of the bills that we have seen or we've seen a couple flag bills that would add to the list of approved flags in associations, first responder flags. We also saw a technical correction bill regarding military flags and cautionary signs regarding children. There's some green bills this year, which would prevent associations from adopting rules prohibiting the installation of artificial turf on a member's property. We also have seen a peaceful assembly bill, which would allow the association excuse me, which would prevent the association from prohibiting or unreasonably restricting a unit owner's ability to peacefully assemble and use private or common elements of the association if it's done in compliance with the restrictions that are reasonable that have been adopted by your board. We're also attracting two bills on short-term rentals. I think we all can agree short-term rentals are the hot topic in Arizona right now. One of the bills uh, would allow a city or town to impose a civil penalty against the owner for every 30 days, the owner fails to provide their contact information to the city, town, or municipality. And the city would have to provide notice, of course, before they could impose that civil penalty on the landlord. 
Also, there's another bill that changes the property classification of rental properties. And this basically has to deal with tax matters. The great thing is during the time that our legislature is in session, which will probably be from like January 2022 till maybe June this year, because this is going to be a big legislative year, we can tell already. Our firm tracks the pending bills with the Arizona legislature. We have a 2022 summary of pending Arizona legislation, which we will be sharing with you shortly. And it's also on the homepage of our website. We update this every week so that you have fresh, new, updated information. All that can be found on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. So we're going to get right into questions here. It is 9.05 and we're going to plug through in the next 55 minutes. If you can believe it, we have 42 questions already. So we got a lot of work to cover this morning. Okay, let's start out with our first question. This is from a homeowner who's a former board member. It took three years to put together quotes and get back, get the board to work together to come up with a solution to our failing plumbing. In our documents, it states that we need a membership vote to use over $20,000 unless it is vital to the function of the community or an emergency. One of the board members pushed for a vote despite our documents. He rallied the community to vote no because it was not his preferred vendor. Earlier last year, there was a three to two vote to move forward with the chosen vendor. Can the board move forward with the project anyways, despite the no vote? This is complicated. I guess, so from a purely legal perspective, if your documents state that in order, if you've got something that's vital to the function of your community or it's an emergency to replace the plumbing, the three to two vote would allow you to move forward. Now, if you're going to do that, what you really need to do is get some backup documentation and writing. I'd get it from a couple sources. So I would go to a plumbing company and have them, one the plumbing company that you plan to use, and then get a second opinion from a second plumbing company and have them put it in writing if they agree that the plumbing repairs are necessary and vital for the functioning of your association. And it's an emergency situation and they need to be done. I also would get a legal opinion from your attorney stating the same thing, and then you should be fine to move forward. A couple of things, having that vote does complicate things because they're going to you know, throw that vote up. If there's a litigation, they're going to be for sure bringing that vote up, saying that it's not the will of the community to do this. So it's not as clean as I would like it to be. But if you do want to move forward and you do feel it's necessary for the functioning of the community, I would recommend that you get those two letters from plumbers on the plumber you plan to hire and then an independent plumber and your attorney to support your decision. And remember, if you do get sued, you have directors and officers insurance that will defend you in the event that you are sued for, you know, breach of fiduciary duty or breach of contract or whatever they're going to try to sue you for. So it's one of those difficult calls, but it sounds like you want to move forward. And I just want to give you the tools in your toolbox so that you can properly defend it if that happens. Great question. Next question is from a board member. What is your general advice on what to follow for creating an electrical vehicle charging policy? A specific question would be, can the association deny EV chargers? I believe the Arizona has not adopted a right to charge law. So we have a great blog on this topic that we're going to be sharing with you right now, and it's called Electrical Vehicles and HOAs and Condos. To the best of my knowledge, the Arizona legislature has not enacted laws regarding electric vehicles and charging stations. And community associations you know, are looking at this issue, of course, more carefully now because there are so many electrical vehicles 
um, that are being purchased and used by Americans and people in Arizona in general. A couple things you should be thinking about is look at your governing documents. Do the documents allow the board discretion to in- install a charging station? Probably they do. This isn't really a planned community issue, typically, or an HOA issue. In an HOA, the owners will be installing it on their own property. Where we're seeing this come into play is in condominiums. How is this going to work? Are we going to have to convert a common area parking spot? How is this going to be funded? Because not everybody drives an electrical vehicle. And so a couple of associations, we've helped them create a policy. And if your association is interested in creating a policy, we can help you with that. The main thing is the funding on it. How are we going to pay for this? Because these charging stations are expensive. What a couple of associations have done is they pass the cost through to the owners. So anybody who's using the charging station has to pay, they have to swipe their credit card in order to use it. And that has been effective. With the technology changing so quickly, it's sometimes associations are making the decision not to invest in infrastructure that could be expensive now and that could over time um, be outdated. So there are some rental companies that are charging these rentals, the electrical charging stations. So there's a lot of different options to consider. And I've been through this process in several different associations, including my own. And so I'm happy to share my knowledge with you and help you create a policy that will work for your association. But be sure to check out our blog and it's you can find our blog on our website, or I believe we're going to be sharing it with you here today too. Great question. Next question is from an owner. Our board wants to adopt a pass-through policy for our community, thereby making homeowners pay for repairs and maintenance to their unit since it does not benefit other owners who do not live in that unit. Can you please explain ARS 33-1255? Absolutely. So a couple things that I think we should talk about would be, what do your documents say on maintenance of these issues? Because that's really going to be dependent on how we apply 33-1255. And so 33-1255 allows us to pass through the cost of certain expenses if it only benefits one unit owner or two unit owners. Sometimes we see this with costs that typically maybe the association would pay for, but maybe that the owner would pay for. It just really depends. I have to see what the issue is that is at stake here. But a lot of times it's dealing with balconies is what I found in my experience. So it depends on do the association's documents have a procedure for who should pay for this. And we need to look at that in light of the statute. We're going to be sharing with you 33-1255, or you can just Google it if you're interested in taking a look at that. And really, this is very complicated. So I would recommend that if you're thinking about passing through as a policy, you really need to talk to your legal counsel because we first have to determine what did the CCNR say, because the statute doesn't kick in unless the CCNRs are silent on something. Do the CCNRs specifically call out how something should be paid for? Is it the association's responsibility? Is it the owner's responsibility? If it isn't called out in your association's documents, then we look to 33-1255. And it could be passed on to the owner as an owner expense because it is only something that is benefiting there. And the state law does allow us to do that if certain circumstances exist in your documents. Hope that's helpful to you. Please reach out to us if your association wants to create that policy. Next question is from a manager. Welcome, one of my favorite managers. So good to see see you here today. A resident is reporting that their neighbor is growing weed in their backyard, not in a locked and enclosed space. 
what is the association's responsibility to address this? You know, it's funny, we've heard this question now, I think this is the third time I've heard this question. So this really is a problem I'm noticing in associations. I think we all are aware that Prop 207 basically legalized marijuana in Arizona and allowed to have individuals consume and grow a limited amount of marijuana within a private residence. Basically, it has to be within the residence. And if they're doing it in their backyard and not in a locked and enclosed space and others could have access to marijuana, I think this is a problem. What I would suggest that you do is have the association write a letter to the owner or the resident and let them know that this is not in compliance with the Safe, Smart and Safe Arizona Act, which deals with uh, the legalization of marijuana and how the growth and the use of marijuana on, on the owner's properties. And I would tell them that they have to put it within their private residence so that nobody else could have potential access to it. And I think that the association is well within their rights to do that. You may also want to contact your city and see what their position is on this. The Neighborhood Services Department or Code Enforcement might take care of this for you too. Okay, we're on question number five, and we have an owner uh, who is asking the existing HOA bylaws require a minimum of three days notice to HOA members in advance of a regular board meeting. This notice period is greater than the 48-hour minimum required under Arizona law. Is an HOA board permitted to disregard the existing bylaws three-day notice requirement in favor of the lesser ARS 48-hour notice Minimum. My opinion on that is I would go, of course, Arizona law only requires 48 hours notice, and that notice needs to be done by conspicuous posting or any other reasonable means. And you know what I would suggest to your association is because your bylaws have a stricter requirement, I would make every effort to comply with that three days. What most associations are doing that's working really well is that they're just putting it on their website. They're putting out a notice once a year saying that our meeting is always the last Wednesday of the month at 8.15 a.m. or whenever your board meeting is. And that way you don't really have to worry about the 48-hour notice or the three-day notice that you have with the conflicting information in your documents because you're just putting it out there. It's always the same time every month and you're not getting nitpicked on the three days of the 48-hour notice. There is an argument that the association only has to comply with the 48 hours notice because that's what state law says. But if I had an association that I was advising in this position, I would say your bylaws have a little bit one more day's notice. It doesn't hurt to give as much advance notice as possible. Okay, moving on to the next question uh, from a board member. Can a Sun City condominium association that is not within a gated community restrict the number of personal vehicles an owner can park on streets that are controlled and maintained by Maricopa County? Great question. It depends on what your documents say. So do your CCNRs for your association prohibit street parking? I don't know what the parking provisions state, but I think the question is, can the association have restrictions that apply to owners when the association doesn't own the streets? And the answer to that is yes. So any owner or resident that is parking their vehicles in violation of the CCNRs, the association has jurisdiction to enforce that provision in the CCNRs. The next question is from an owner. Please cite the Arizona statute that allows for nonprofit HOAs to host bingo for a profit. We're getting this question a lot now. It's interesting. I had this question just three times this week. I think people are getting back to business in our associations, right? And hosting social events and bingo. 
Okay, a couple of thoughts. Arizona charitable gaming laws state that no member, director, officer, employer, or agent of the nonprofit organization can receive direct or non-direct pecuniary benefit other than being able to participate in the raffle on a basis equal to all other participants. And any of the proceeds of any game should be devoted to lawful uses or use. And we're going to be sharing with you a website called letsgambleusa.com. And it talks about Arizona charitable gaming. There's also a statute in Arizona that's 5-406 talking about persons permitted to conduct games on the premises. And so we're going to be sharing all that information with you too. Okay, the bottom line here is many associations are hosting bingo. Many associations are not hosting bingo for profit because it is considered gaming. And so typically what associations are doing if they are hosting bingo is that all the money that comes in for the cards that are bought for bingo that day is given out that same day. So it's just a wash. Basically, there's no profit to any directors. There's no direct profit to the association. It's money in, money out, same day. And that's how most associations are navigating this. If you are hosting bingo and your association is making a profit on this, you really need to reach out to your association's legal counsel and find out whether or not you might be in violation of any Arizona gaming laws. So be careful on that. Next question is from an owner. Can my board meet by email and vote by email? They discussed raising dues by email and wanted to vote by email. Okay, so a couple of things. The Arizona Open Meeting Law requires that anytime a quorum of the board is present discussing association business, it must be an open meeting and it must be noticed 48 hours in advance so that members can be allowed to attend, listen, and participate as the board discusses and votes on issues such as increasing uh, dues. In my opinion, based upon the limited facts that I have here today, an association that is increasing their assessment rate and voting to increase their assessment rate, that needs to be done either at a regular board meeting or maybe even at a special meeting of the members if it's going above a certain percentage and you need to vote of the members. I don't know the facts of how this went down at your association. I don't know if there was an emergency that required them to do this. There is an exception under Arizona law that the board can suspend the 48 hours notice and make decisions on an emergency basis. And we have we recommend that the boards comply with the law and it has to be a true emergency. And there are times where the board may need to make a decision, an emergency decision by email, but this doesn't sound like it just based on the limited knowledge I have from your questions. So if your board did vote to raise the dues by email, they really should go back and reaffirm that decision in the open board meeting so that it's not challenged. Next question is from a board member. If an owner is verbally abusive and harassing officers of the HOA by calling them horribly rude, vulgar, and insulting names, what can the board do to make it stop? This is, I mean, I hate to say this, but this is a question we get all the time. And we deal with this all the time. When you're serving on your board, it's a tough job. We all know, I know it from serving on my board. So I'm sorry that this is happening to you, number one. And you have to have a thick skin if you're serving on the board. There's just, there's no room for thin skin when you're serving on your board. So the question is, how do we make it stop? So we have a really great cheat sheet on dealing with difficult owners that I would request that you take a look at. And we just shared that with you here. But the first step that I would suggest that you do is tell the owner to stop verbally and in writing and keep a journal of the encounters that you have with them, note how you responded when they were verbally abusive to you. 
keep emails, voicemails, texts, all of them, keep a copy of them for future reference. We may need it if this proceeds forward. So step one, tell them to stop verbally and in writing. If it doesn't stop, I have the board or the management company write a letter. Maybe the attorney writes the letter demanding that they cease and desist from the harassing behavior. If they still continue to not stop harassing you, you have a couple of, of options. Number one, you can contact the police, see if they'll get involved. Number two, you can go to your local justice court and get an injunction prohibiting harassment against the person that's harassing and abusing you. Recognize that those injunctions prohibiting harassment are difficult to get. You have to show that there's a pattern of conduct and that they've threatened you with either physical harm or maybe they've actually you know, had some physical harm of you or maybe, maybe they pushed you or threatened you in person or in writing. All of these things are important to have documentation so that you can show the judge and the judge feel that there has been repeated threats of harm against you or if there has been actual pushing or shoving, which would be physical harm against you. The judge will issue an order, an injunction preventing harassment, and that owner will need to cease from having any contact with you and will have to stay anywhere between 25 to 50 feet away from you. So there's a number of different you know, remedies. You, if you want the deep dive on this, definitely check out our cheat sheet on dealing with difficult people and harassment. And we have a second cheat sheet on how to deal with the bully in a community association. Next question is from a board member, and we're on question number 10. We have a community of 25 homes, 10 are rentals. We cannot obtain enough voting members to amend our documents or elect as needed. Our CCNR state a majority vote of the board. The association occasionally and subject to the provisions of this declaration may adopt, amend, and repeal rules and regulations for the project. The association rules may restrict and govern the use of any area by owner or owner's permittees. However, the association rules may not discriminate against owners. Can the board amend the documents to support the community? So it's kind of hard for me to figure out what's going on here based on the question, but it looks like you've got 25 homes, 10 are rentals. It appears that there are problems with the owners. And I guess the board wants to know, can we address issues by amending the rules? Because the board can adopt the rules and we can't get the vote to amend the CCNRs. I think that's what's going on here. The rules are pretty broad. Uh, you have broad rulemaking authority based upon the language that you shared with me in your question, but there's some things that a rules can't do, like you wouldn't be able to implement a rental restriction by passing a rule, but you could pass a rule saying pets have to be on leashes or you might even be able to do parking rules. So what I would recommend that you do is have your association reach out to our firm and let us know what kind of rules you want to implement. And then we can cross-check your documents and see if there's any conflicts or see if it's something that is a rule that we feel would be legally acceptable based upon your broad rulemaking authority and your existing documents. Great question. Okay, next question, also from a board member. Our CCNR state, all work must be performed by licensed contractors when required by Arizona law. Not sure what Arizona law I should be reviewing with regards to whether a licensed contractor is required to work in an HOA. So what we would suggest that you do is take a look at ARS 32-1151 and 32-1121A14. And basically 32-1151 sets forth an Arizona contractor's licensing requirements. Um, it's unlawful for a person to even submit a bid or respond to a request for a proposal 
for construction services without having a license. And there's an exception known as the handyman exception, which you should also take a look at, which is in 331121 A14. So bottom line is a person who does not hold a contractor's license, it's unlawful for them to bid and accept work when the job is over $1,000 if they aren't licensed. So if the contract price, labor and materials amounts to less than 1000 you don't need to have a contractor's license. If it's more, you would. Regardless of the job at hand, though, it's our firm's opinion that it's always best practices for the association to hire a licensed and bonded contractor for a number of reasons in the event that if you have you hire somebody and they don't have the proper licenses and bonding and insurance and they get injured while they're doing work at your association, they could be classified as an employee of yours, even though you know they claim to be an independent contractor. We've seen this happen with roofing contractors a few times in the past, and it's very expensive. So what happens is the association ultimately is responsible for the injury if somebody you know, gets injured while they're working on your property. And we really do recommend as a firm that for any job in your association that you are using licensed and bonded contractors. The Arizona Register of Contractors has great information on their website. And we're going to be sharing with you that link here. And we really encourage you to take a look at that. And it gives you some suggestions on what are best practices for associations when they're looking to hire uh, licensed and bonded contractors. Next question is from a board member. I'm newly elected to our board and the first board meeting is coming up soon. The board president and I are not seeing eye to eye on recent community related issues. The board president has said that homeowners can only speak for two to three minutes during board meetings. Can the board president prevent or limit a board member from talking at a board meeting? And is there an order of when board members are called on to speak? Okay, so a couple things going on here. So we have a new board member and they are trying to navigate their newness on the board. And we have a board president who has maybe some established procedures. And it, it sounds like some of these procedures are pretty standard though. I want you to know that. And so many associations have a rule that says that homeowners can talk during a homeowner forum at the beginning of the meeting and they place a time limitation on how long the owners can talk of two or three minutes. And the reason why they do this is because board meetings are long and we have to get to the business of the meeting. And if we spend the entire time having homeowners giving long statements, we can't get our work done. And so it's actually pretty generous to do the two to three minutes for homeowners to talk before the meeting starts in the homeowner forum. That's a really reasonable approach to this. And that's what we recommend to our clients. I guess what you're wondering is, can the board president prevent or limit a board member from talking at a board meeting. And you're a board member, you have a right to talk. That is one of your inherent rights as a board member. Now, if you wanna switch hats and be a homeowner, because you're also a homeowner and talk during the homeowner forum, of course you can switch over and say, I'm talking to the board as a homeowner during the homeowner forum. It would be odd for you to do that because it just doesn't make sense because you're a board member. You can give your input before the board takes action on something during the board meeting. And so I think maybe you're misunderstanding what's going on here. So as a board member, you have a right to talk during the board meeting. Your next question was, is there an order for when board members are called on to speak? But that really is in the discretion of the chair or the president. So they can call on people in the order that they choose. They can't be discriminatory. Obviously, they can't be refusing to call on you as a board member, but they can place limits. Sometimes we get long-winded board members 
and we can't get the meeting work done at the meeting. And so sometimes the chair or the board president will have to say, okay, only one minute for everybody on this topic. You can only contribute for one minute. So it shouldn't be just for one board member. It should be the limitation for all board members if we have a lot of work to get done. And we've got some long-winded people that are um, making the meeting significantly longer. Okay, we have two great cheat sheets that I want to tell you about. Community Association board meetings is one of our most popular cheat sheets. We're going to be sharing that with you. I encourage you to take a look at it so you get up to speed on what the law says about how to run a board meeting and how to handle conflict between board members during the board meeting. We also have a blog that we recently wrote on dysfunction among board members. So we're sharing both of these with you. I hope you take a look at it. You can find all of this information as well on our firm's website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, moving right along. We have a question from another board member, member 13. What rights does a non-owner renter have with respect to association business? Can they attend meetings or be barred from attending? They are complaining about routine landscape maintenance. Is there a safety or health issue? I would want them to complain, but not about the typical business of the association. Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet on this topic too called How to Work Effectively with Rental Properties. Renters, non-owners do not have the legal right to attend board meetings. The only way that they would be able to attend a board meeting legally is if the owner of the property made them their designated agent in writing and stated that the tenant has the right to attend board meetings as their designated agent and talk as their designated agent at the board meeting. And if that happens, then you have to allow the tenant to talk. Next question, number 14 from an owner. The association is responsible for exterior landscape and I had an exterior rodent issue and the HOA and the board refused to take action or pay for a one-time service. They're asking me to comment on this. Landscaping is a little bit different than pest control. I can see how possibly the board said that this is not something that we are going to pay for. I would check your documents to see if there's any discussion about pest control. We see this with termites. We see this with rodents, roof rats, etc. If for some reason the roof rats were caused because the association isn't properly trimming the orange trees, I may have, you'd have to prove that, it'd have to be, you'd have to show that was the exact cause. But I think it's just with the limited facts that I have here, I'm not seeing the crossover that the association is required to pay for an exterior rodent issue. Now, mind you, if the association's common area has issues with pest control, ants or rodents or termites, that would be an association issue typically. But again, check your documents. Okay, next question, 15 from a board member. Right now, fire pits are not allowed in our common area. Several residents have asked the mobile fire pits to be allowed on any cement or paver areas in the common areas. This seems like a high liability issue for the HOA regarding potential fires and personal injury. Many of the cement driveways are shared with four units needing access in a condensed space. This is where someone would like to have the fire pits, but I also worry about access in and out of garages in an emergency. Any thoughts or suggestions? I don't know enough about your association in terms of 
is this a limited common element? Is this, it sounds like it's on common areas. Typically, associations are not allowing owners to roll out fire pits, whether they're gas or whether they're wood or on the common areas. What we typically will see is we are seeing an increase in associations that are having association provided fire pits on common areas, but we, we don't typically see mobile fire pits coming on common areas by association members. So that would be unusual, and I can see how an association would feel that's a liability. Another issue is, let's say an owner has a patio area and they want to put a fire pit on their patio area. As long as the fire pit you know, is on their property or on their limited common elements, and it's not a violation of city or county rules or regulations, and it's not causing a nuisance to others, we are seeing more use of gas fire pits. The wood ones create a little bit different issue because there's smoke and there's smell. So that may not be something that your association is going to permit. But what I would recommend is that you have your attorney take a formal look at this issue, um, especially where the fire pits are located. If they're on the common areas, I think this probably is something that mobile fire pits that owners are bringing out there can be prohibited. Okay, question 16. The question is on your cheat sheet, amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions. Would you please ex explain step five? CCNR amendments must be placed into final form and recorded at the county recorder's office within 30 days. When does the 30-day count start? We do have a great cheat sheet um, called amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions. And typically, we have a five-step plan anytime you're thinking about amending your documents for your community. And the last step is when you're successful and you the amendment has passed, there is a law in Arizona that says when a CCNR amendment is passed by the owners, that we need to record that amendment with the Maricopa County Recorder's Office within 30 days of the amendment passing. And so it really just depends. When did you get the vote to have it pass? Is it the date, the last date that you get the last signature? Is it the date that the voting ends? Typically, it's the time that you get the last signature to get over the threshold that you need. Sometimes we wait a little bit longer because we want to make sure we have to verify the votes and we want to have a little wiggle room and maybe have a couple extra in case somebody's vote is challenged. So I hope that answers your question. Next question is question 17 from a board member. Is there an ARS requirement for an HOA to post regularly scheduled committee meetings? If so, what is the ARS reference? Okay, so if you're a planned community, that the statute is ARS 33-1804. If you're a condominium, it's 33-1248. And basically what that statute says is if there is a regularly scheduled committee meeting. So like, for example, your architectural committee meets the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. Then you would have to follow the Arizona open meeting law and provide 48 hours notice of the meeting, the committee meeting to the membership by posting or conspicuous posting in your property or any other reasonable means. So the statute again is 33-1804 and 33-1248. So 1804 is for HOAs, 1248 is for condominiums. Question 18 from a board member. An owner in an upper deck unit had a leak that impacted the unit below. The owner in the lower unit is stating the area between the levels is the HOA's responsibility and wants us to check for mold due to the leak. Does the HOA have to perform this test or is it between the owners only and the HOA doesn't get involved? 
okay, so it appears that this is a leak issue in a condominium. And these are always complicated. What I would recommend is I'm sure that there's a remediation company that's coming out to handle the leak repairs. And usually when there's a leak between an upper unit and a lower unit in a condominium, the owners own only the airspace within their unit. So there are some common areas in between that. And so we recommend that there be some evaluation to make sure that the water damage is cleaned up and there's not any mold. So does the HOA have to perform this test? There's no legal requirement, but it's best practices for the HOA to have somebody come out and at least take a look at it. And it's not expensive. It doesn't have to be a super formal. Typically, a contractor can do it with, there's a, a water thing that you can do on your phone where it's like an infrared thing that you can use, or there's this little pricker thing that they put in the wall to see if there's moisture. If there is moisture, there needs to be further evaluation as to whether there's mold. So I think it would be best practices for your condo to double check that. Question 19 from a board member. Our rules and regulations state you are allowed to have a pet, but no more than 30 pounds at full maturity. My question is, do the same rules apply for service animals? So great question. We have a cheat sheet on um, the Fair Housing Act that talks about emotional support pets and service animals. The bottom line is probably not because... Service animals are sight dogs, hearing dogs, dogs that may help detect epilepsy or things of that nature. And it's unlikely that dog is going to be 30 pounds because trained service animals are usually larger dogs. So my feeling is under the Fair Housing Act, I don't think that you're going to be able to enforce that 30 pounds rule that you have. And you likely will need to make a reasonable accommodation to allow for the service animal. But check out our cheat sheet on federal laws because we have a really good overview on uh, the Fair Housing Act that might be helpful to you. Okay, next question, question 20. Let's see, I think we're almost at the halfway point. Let's see, how many total questions do we have? Oh, we're up to 46. Let's see, question 20 is from a board member. ARS 331808H requires HOAs to allow circulation of political petitions on a property. But K excludes HOAs that restrict vehicular or pedestrian access to the planned community. So if they have a gate, it, then it doesn't apply. However, K also states this section does not require a planned community to make its common elements other than roadways and sidewalks that are normally open to visitors available for the circulation of political petitions to anyone who is not an owner or resident of the community. So the question is, is, the HOA, is an HOA with private roads that are open to visitors required to allow circulation of political petitions to residents? Great question. If we go and look at the language of 331808H, and then we read it in conjunction with K, basically the HOA is not required to allow just random people, non-residents, to come in and circulate political petitions you have to be a resident of the community to do that. So let's just break this down. So if there's a gate that restricts vehicular or pedestrian access, this law isn't going to apply to them, number one. Number two, you can't just have rando people coming into your community with petitions. That's not going to be something that's allowed by the statute. It does allow an owner or the residents to circulate you know, petitions in your community. So I hope that helps you as you navigate this. You may want to go through and take a look at 331808K. Again, and this isn't really an issue that comes up that often, but it might with the upcoming, I think we all can agree that upcoming political elections are going to be um, heated. 
in the next four years. And we're also seeing some bills in the Arizona legislature this year talking about peaceful assembly in your association. So these are all hot topics that are going to be things that come up over the next few years. Okay, next question, question 21 from a board member. If a committee has a quorum for a meeting without notifying it as an open meeting, what does that do to the validity of the meeting? Okay, first question is, remember that a committee is not required to comply with the open meeting law and provide notice and follow all other aspects of the open meeting law pertaining to HOAs and condominiums unless it's a regularly scheduled committee meeting. So I guess the first question is, is this committee one of those committees that meets regularly and it's a regularly scheduled committee meeting? If it is and you have a quorum and you didn't notify your owners that it was an open meeting, what I would just require or what I would suggest that you do is reaffirm the decisions at a future committee meeting. If you are not a regularly scheduled, you're not required to comply with the open meeting law. And so you don't have to worry about the validity of what you discussed at that meeting. Question 22, another one from a board member. The board decided in June 2021 to notify 13 unit owners that have large trees planted in the front patio areas to remove those trees within 60 days. Those areas are association property per our CCNRs and the trees are encroaching on roofs, water and sewer lines. Only five owners have complied. The remaining owners have been given notice of violation twice. What steps can the board now take to gain compliance? Okay, it appears that it's questionable to me because I'm not sure the front patio area has trees that are planted. I'm assuming that these are like limited common elements and they're damaging the roofs, waters, and sewer lines. It appears that the association under the documents would have the legal authority to do this, but I haven't seen your documents. So typically there's a section in there that says that owners are responsible for any you know, damage that they cause. This might be a good example of how we might be able to use that section. And it also could be causing a nuisance. And you've tried it to get the five, you know, five have complied out of 13. What I would recommend now is to turn this matter over to our law firm and have us write a letter to the remaining owners and just outlining the legal steps we're going to take. We can find the owner for non-compliance. We can threaten a lawsuit. We can let them know that they're responsible for all the damages and they're responsible for the attorney's fees for having to write the violation letter. We can also call the owner and talk through the different steps that we're going to need to take if they don't comply. Uh, the association could also consider going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and filing a petition there to get the owners a ruling that the owners must comply with this. There isn't any teeth to force the owners to comply if you go to the ADRE, so litigation may be a better route. Um, but I think now is the time to escalate it to your attorney. If they don't want to remove the trees, maybe think about a pivot. Is there a way that they can cut back the roots so that they no longer are you know, causing damage? Probably not, because I know just from owning property myself, if you have a tree with very expansive roots, they're just going to continue to grow even when you cut them back. But just some different suggestions there that might help you. Okay, next question is from an owner. Are on the Realtor HOA information form, our HOA indicates a transfer fee of $140 and disclosure fee none. Our documents do not provide for a transfer fee. I have not been successful with getting our HOA to change this despite sharing your cheat sheet with them. They say that this is, has been this way for several years. What is the exposure to our HOA for this misstatement? Um, you know, I guess my thoughts would be, 
I'd have to look at what your documents state. Like, do your CCNRs allow for a transfer fee? And is it in compliance with what Arizona law requires for transfer fees or capital contribution fees? So that would be one question I have. If your CCNRs don't have anything in there about transfer fees, then we would have to look at what does state law say? The Nonprofit Corporation Act allows for a de minimis transfer fee to assist the association with the transfer paperwork from one owner to the other. An argument, I guess, could be made that $140 is reasonable. It's a little high, though, for that, in my personal opinion. The easiest thing to do would be just to call it the disclosure fee. I don't know why they're not doing that, if that's what the fee is actually being used for, if they're providing information to buyers. But ultimately, you're an owner. The board makes the final call on this. What's the exposure to the HOA for the misstatement if it's determined by a court that the $140 fee is invalid? The association would have to pay it back to the owner. There's a possibility, very remote, but there's a possibility there could be a class action lawsuit for anybody that you know, paid this fee in the past. But again, that's pretty remote. I don't think that's going to happen. But So hopefully that gives you some suggestions on how to proceed forward. Okay, we're halfway through the questions. We got a lot of questions today, so we'll keep plugging through. If the disclosure fees for an HOA are 250 in January 2010, can it be increased from 250 to 400 all at once? It just depends. I believe that the statute says that it can be increased up to 20% each year. And so I don't know, did your association exercise that right to increase it every year from January 2010? Was there a discussion of this? I do know from practical experience that most HOAs and condos, they're not really following this law where, you know, whatever the law was, whenever the law passed, it said that whatever you are charging, the you could go up 20% per year and max out at $400. I can tell you just from what I've seen in the industry that boards, a lot of boards are doing exactly this. They're just bumping it up to the 400 and no one's challenging it. As an attorney that practices in this area, I would say be careful on this because you don't want to get sued. These lawsuits can be expensive and you could have to return the money. So... I'd have to look at the minutes, but I think probably if I were advising the association, I would say, go back and look at the minutes. Was there a discussion about increasing it, maybe not exercising it, but they were talking about the disclosure fee and that gives us the ability to bump it up to 400. Probably they don't have that and they should just stick with going up to 20% until they max it out at 400. Next question, I'm a board member. The HOA wants to not cash a check for dues from a non-owner. The non-owner has been hiding this property from the bankruptcy court and creditors for many years. According to Pima County records, this property is owned by a Wisconsin couple, but they died 15 years ago. The HOA would like to foreclose on the property for unpaid dues to get a real owner with a clean title. How should the HOA proceed? Mm, this is a complicated one. Okay, so can we refuse a payment from somebody on a property? like a non-owner. Truly, we don't usually have this question because usually the association just wants to get paid, right? They want um, to be paid on the debt because they have responsibilities onto the budget. And so this is an odd question, but I see how it's where I see exactly what's happening here. So somebody, Wisconsin couple owned it. They passed away 15 years ago. Maybe this is a child or maybe somehow this should have passed in title to this particular owner and it didn't. And now they don't want anybody to know about this asset. Maybe they're going through a divorce or like you said, bankruptcy. It just really depends on the circumstances. This would be a tough one for me because technically you could refuse the payment because it's not coming from the owner, but 
if you're looking to like maliciously foreclose to somehow benefit the association, like you want the association to take back the property, I, I wouldn't be in favor of doing that. So this is one we'd have to talk a little bit more about. Is there a, a big debt that's owed here? And this owner is just paying it, everyone, or this non-owner is paying this on behalf of the deceased owners just every once in a while. And it's creating a hardship for your association. I've seen cases like this a lot. And in that case, maybe you wouldn't accept it, but we got to look at all the facts. So I would say reach out to our firm and let us help you with this. Because if we foreclose, obviously we have to meet the foreclosure threshold, which would be, we have to be one year delinquent in the payment of assessments only or $1,200 in assessments only that's unpaid. So this is one I'd have to think about a little bit more and then strategize with you as a client. Okay, next question, question 26 from a board member. A couple of homeowners have recently started attending board meetings. We don't have a management company, so we want to make sure we're doing it right. Should we let each owner speak about each agenda item prior to the board discussion or vote, or should we have them speak about anything in general at the beginning of the meeting and then do our business without further input? Great question. Check out our cheat sheet called board meetings. I think it'll provide you with some great information. We've already shared it here today, Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And so a couple of thoughts. We recommend that at the beginning of any board meeting that the board have a homeowner forum and allow owners to you know, make any comments that they want to make, maybe maximum one or two minutes, and then move forward with the business of the board meeting. The only time the board is required to allow owners to contribute once the board gets into the board meeting is before the board takes formal action, before the board votes on something. So how it will typically work is somebody makes a motion, somebody makes a second, and then there's discussion that's opened. The board obviously is discussing things as board members. If an owner wants to interject and state something during this discussion period before a vote is taken, when there's motion and a second on the floor, that is an appropriate time to, to have that discussion. So that's the 411 on what you need to do on that. Okay, if you can believe it, we have 76 people here with us on Zoom today, which is awesome. And we have a number of people joining us on Facebook Live too. So thanks again, everybody, for being here today. Question 27 from a board member. Can an HOA's architectural committee have co-chairs, one being the board president and one not a board member. If not co-chair, would vice chair be an acceptable title? We have a highly qualified person willing to lead our newly formed AC, but they are not yet a board member. So great question. So as you know, I can tell from the way this letter or this question is worded, a board member has to chair the architectural committee, but I think it's totally okay to have a co-chair as long as the board member is okay with that or a vice chair. I think both of those are great alternatives. And you should definitely think about getting that highly qualified person to serve on the board as well in the future. Question 28 from a board member. One of our board members has a very large overgrown Meyer lemon tree that is frankly a mess. In a board meeting today, the owner said that she has an arborist who will trim it under her direction. Our board and our community members are tired of looking at the tree and the lemons that are continually falling to the ground. When asked when the trimming will be done, the owner says, I have no idea, after the fruit is gone. She does not allow our landscape team to pick the lemons or trim ever. Our CCNRs charge the board with maintenance of landscaping. What should we do? Okay, a couple of questions. It appears that this is a tree that the association 
is maintaining. I don't know if it's in a limited common element or it doesn't appear to be on the common areas. It's not being maintained. And the board needs to treat this owner, who also ironically happens to be a board member, just like they would treat any other owner. And if the board has maintenance of landscaping responsibilities, the board should be maintaining this. And if this tree is a nuisance, the tree may need to be removed. Now, this is going to create World War III with this board member. I know that. And so let's try to maybe have your attorney get involved and work it out with the board member owner. Maybe we need to have the attorney get involved, have the owner expedite their uh, trimming and maintenance on this tree. Or maybe we need to get the board member and the attorney involved to have the board member understand this tree just needs to be removed. And if you know she or he doesn't remove the tree, the association may need to remove it if they have the right to do that under the documents. So this is going to be a sour issue, no pun intended for sure. Make sure that you get your attorney involved to help you on this. Okay, next question. This from a board member. Do Arizona statutes permit nominations from the floor for board positions at the annual HOA meeting? So no, our, there is nothing under currently under Arizona law that would require this. You'll want to look at your association's documents to see if they're silent on this or to see if they say no nominations from the floor or if they allow it. Most are silent. And so most of the time, nominations from the floor are allowed unless the board announces in advance of the meeting that they're not going to be allowed. A couple of thoughts. Nominations from the floor really don't work right now in associations because we send out absentee ballots and all those ballots are voted before the annual meeting and they don't have the nomination from the floor person's name on there. So usually it's an inconsequential vote unless there aren't enough candidates running. And then nominations from the floor really do become something that is a game changer. Okay, next question is from a board member. It has been recommended to foreclose on an individual due to delinquent fines. We have previously gone to both Superior Court and Small Court Claims Court over the past five to seven years for delinquent fines. Recent small claims judgment was ordered to pay $4,400 plus interest, but as of this date, no fine, no funds have been received. The owner owes another $4,350 and no dues paid in the past 20 months. When should an HOA consider pursuing foreclosure? Okay, so a couple things. We cannot foreclose on an owner for unpaid fines. We can only foreclose on an owner for unpaid assessments. And like I said a few minutes ago with the question, it has to be one year delinquent in the payment of assessments only, which appears they haven't paid dues in 20 months. So it appears that we're one of the boxes that we need to check is present. And so you may be, you may want to be considering pursuing the foreclosure for the unpaid assessments. And then an add-on would be to add to this lawsuit the unpaid fines, and you'll have to navigate handling the prior judgments. Typically, we merge them into the foreclosure judgment once it's finalized as a, the personal. So it's, it's confusing because we can foreclose on the unpaid assessments. So there's a foreclosure account for the unpaid assessments, and then there is a personal judgment account in the foreclosure lawsuit for fines, but we can't technically foreclose just for fines. So I know that's complicated, but these are complicated cases. I really would recommend that your firm reach out to your firm to make sure that you do this right, because you don't want to 
file a foreclosure lawsuit in Superior Court asking for the court to foreclose for the fines because you will lose. That is not something that's allowable under some law. Okay, question 31. Uh, board member, our community is five years old and some homeowners want to replace the clubhouse furniture as the current table and chairs look great but are not functional for card games and are too heavy to move. Our reserves show a 10-year life. Can we use a reserve account money to change out some of the tables and chairs? And would that need approval? Okay, I don't have your association's documents, so I don't you know, know if you have any special requirements on this. I also don't know how much you're spending. You did say big project, so I'm assuming this is some big bucks. I guess, let's see. I guess my thoughts would be that why don't you just put up like some card tables, some less expensive card tables, which can be easily moved in your clubhouse to accommodate the card players. I don't know if that's something that you, your board would consider doing. If your reserves show a 10-year life for your um, furniture, it to me doesn't make sense without, you know, getting approval from your majority of your owners if they want to expend this, this type of money to change out, redecorate your clubhouse furniture to accommodate the, the card players. It doesn't seem like this is something that's going to receive a majority approval on. So I think probably what I would do is you might want to conduct a poll in your community to see how people are feeling about changing how the space is utilized. And if you're going to spend the money to get rid of that concrete table and chairs that looks nice, but isn't functional, or you might want to consider just getting some cheap card tables that are just put up for the, the days that the, the card games are played in your um, common areas. You might even want to do those outside because the weather's so nice in Arizona most of the year. So there's some different options for you. And I think I've given you my thoughts on, on spending money to replace something that hasn't gone past its useful life yet. Okay, next question, 32. We want to know if we can borrow money for a large project. Our articles say we can borrow with the majority of the board, but our bylaws, which were written years after the articles, says the board does not have the power to borrow without the approval of the members, which document prevails, the articles or the bylaws. So under Arizona law, the articles are going to prevail over the bylaws. Um, so it appears that you can do this with a majority vote of the board. If you do take out a loan, there's going to be a whole process that you have to follow, and they're going to require an opinion letter from your attorney saying that you have the authority to do this. And that distinction between your articles and bylaws will be addressed by the board's attorney when they do the opinion letter. And I think you should be able to move forward with the loan, assuming that you have a majority of the board voting to do it. Okay, question 33 from a board member. Is it legal to have a spa cover? in our community pool area. I heard it's against Maricopa County rules. I don't know the answer to that. What I would suggest that you do is reach out to the county and find out what their position is on it. I will say that I don't see a lot of spa covers when I'm out at associations around the valley. So that may very well be true. Question 34, board member, a new owner purchased a second story condo unit and has requested to install hard flooring. Our CCNRs do not allow hard flooring on the second floor as there is a unit underneath, so there could be a noise problem. The new owner states his new flooring would be equivalent to carpet, but there's no way to verify this. The new owner states his wife has a breathing disability and carpet is harmful to her. Can we legally deny this request or are there FHA or ADA rules that would allow this? 
Okay, I've been doing this 25 years. That's a first. I haven't heard that one. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, if your CCNR say no hard flooring on the second floor, that is enforceable. If the new owner has some sort of a disability and they're asking for a reasonable accommodation, they need to submit a letter to the association's board regarding the accommodation and the disability. And then the association and the association's attorney should look at that and determine if the association is required to comply and give them a reasonable accommodation and allow them to have hard flooring. Without that, though, I would definitely not be in favor of you, you know, violating what your CCNR say. If there is a need for a reasonable accommodation and we have to allow some sort of flooring, there is special flooring and subflooring and cork that is placed in between the floors. It's very expensive, but that could be something that we require um, in order the owner to pay for to make sure that there's not going to be any sort of a sound problem. And so we'll have to look at that. It has the facts unfold in this case. Okay, question 30. An approximately 110-foot wall was torn down without permission or notification and no permits have been filed. How can you tell if a wall is HOA or personal? A couple of different ways. So I would look, well, first I would go to the Maricopa County maps and look at the property lines and see where the wall fell in, in relation to the property lines. And you'll be able to do an aerial view for several years back. So if the wall's already down, you will be able to determine where the property line is and where the wall is when the wall was up. You also could get the property staked by using a land surveyor to see if the property, the wall was on the owner's property or on the association's property. Those are two different things that you can do to determine that. Question 36, and it looks like we're up to 48 questions. So we're moving right along. Next question is from a board member. What power does the board have to deal with non-participating more board members who delay the HOA's business? Okay, so I'm not quite sure what you mean by non-participating board members, but maybe it's just because you need a majority of three votes and they don't show up at meetings. I'm guessing that's probably what you're saying, or maybe they don't respond to emergency emails or something or things of that nature. So I think what you do is you say to the board member that's not participating, we need you to be an active board member. Your non-participation is limiting us from being able to get our work done. And so find out, do they want to get off the board? If they do, have them resign in writing. If they want to stay on the board, but maybe they're having some sort of a family situation or a health situation, give them the option to appear at the meetings telephonically or by Zoom. Maybe you structure the meetings in such a way that you have all the important votes that you need right up front of the meeting and that they have to leave the meeting after that. Then they only stay for five or 10 minutes. We get their votes that we need. Those are some different options, but definitely open the lines of communication with the owner and find out what's going on, the owner board member, and find out why aren't you participating and just communicate with them that, hey, we need you and we either need you to resign or we need to find a pivot here so that you can participate and help us get our business done. Okay, 12 more questions. Question 37, what is the best practice regarding getting one to remove disrespectful or political belief flags being displayed? Ah, this is a good question. This is a question that came up with the last presidential election where we saw a lot of, of, of situations like this. Okay, a couple of things to think about. Remember that under Arizona law, only certain flags are protected and are allowed to be flown by a member in an association. And, and these flags 
the association cannot prohibit. So it would be like the United States flag, the armed services flag, the Gazden flag, the Arizona state flag, the Indian nations flag. If they're flying another type of flag in your community, it doesn't sound like it's one of those flags, right? So they're not protected under Arizona law. So then look at what your documents state for your association. Do your documents allow flags? Could you pass a rule that would state that only flags that are allowable under Arizona law can be flown? And then you'd have some teeth to ask everybody to remove their St. Patrick's Day flag or their political belief flags. It's a sensitive situation for sure, especially we have had a lot of controversy in our country, frankly, and and there are difficult situations right now in our country and, and people are expressing their feelings on some of these difficult situations. If the flag is disrespectful, I think that you reach out to the owner and let them know that people are complaining about it and ask them to remove it. If it's a political belief flag, let's say it's maybe a gay pride flag or maybe it's a Black Lives Matter flag, you know, exercise caution when you are telling an owner that they don't have the right to fly that because this is a sensitive topic in our country right now. And and basically what we're telling most of our clients is if the flag isn't disrespectful or isn't something that is discriminatory or harmful, be a little bit more lenient on it. Of course, you can always be real strict and say it's only Arizona state flags are allowed as pursuant to Arizona state law. But be careful because we've had a couple of associations that have been on the news, national news and state news, for being really strict on political belief flags or just belief flags in general. And it can give you a lot of negative publicity. Okay, next question from a board member. Our HOA controls the number of leased properties to 5% of the total properties and does not pass the right to lease to a new owner at the time of sale. The new owner must apply after purchase if they wish to lease the property. Members on our waiting list take priority over new owners. If a homeowner of a leased property wishes to sell that property prior to the end of the lease, does the tenant have rights that would require the new owner and the HOA to honor that lease? Okay, so you have a lot going on here. You already have members on your waiting list to lease beyond your 5% of your members being able to lease the property, which by the way, this whole little 5%, only 5%, only 10% can lease. Just so you know, that's really, it's hard to enforce and it's hard to come up with a plan, just like you're saying here, as to who can be in that 5%. And it causes a lot of problems. So we usually advise against boards doing that. Okay, so the question is, if we have a homeowner of a leased property and they want to sell that property prior to the end of the lease, can that tenant stay on? So the new owner comes in and the tenant stays on. I think there's a law that requires you know the tenant to be able to be a holdover tenant. So what I would say is that, yes, you probably were, are going to have to honor that lease, even though the ownership of the property changed because the tenant has the right to continue on for the term of the lease that they had with the former owner. The question is, though, when the lease expires now, does the new owner who inherited the tenant, did they go to the bottom of the pile for the waiting list? And based upon how you're doing things, it sounds like that's going to happen and that is going to create issues for your associations. I guess it sounds like you have something in your documents that says the right to pass, the right to lease to the new owner. So maybe there's an argument that the new owner can't lease the property 
after they become the new owner. But like I said, the holdover tenant, you're going to have to let them stay. I think that's my legal opinion. And maybe the new owner, because of whatever your documents say, I don't have them. I'm just trying to answer this off the cuff. Maybe they wouldn't be able to lease, like you said, if it's in your CCNRs and they'd have to apply for a new tenant after the holdover tenants leases up if they want to lease their property. Here's what I would say. What a mess. Um, that 5% thing is a nightmare and you need to really think about reevaluating how you're doing that because it's going to result in a lawsuit for issues just like this. Okay, question 39. Uh, board member, interior leaks from an unmaintained exterior elements have plagued my condo for years. As a board member, I've been a strong advocate for repair for nearly three years. My fellow board members don't share my sense of urgency and are focused on band-aid solutions versus professional repair recommendations. If I engage an attorney to force a solution, must I resign from the board? So short answer would be no. You do not have to resign from the board, but you're going to have to recuse yourself from any of the board's discussion and voting on this topic because ultimately you're taking a position that will be adverse to the board. You go on to say it's a double-edged sword as I am the most experienced board member and deeply knowledgeable about prior repairs and what is needed to solve the problem. You can still stay on the board, obviously. It's just when they're discussing your issue of, your, you know, you hire, you're going to hire a lawyer to get this handled. You shouldn't be present when they're discussing it or voting on it. But you can still stay on the board and you can still weigh in on other owners that may have the same issue that you have and that are expressing concern. You can still vote and communicate on that. Okay, next question, board member. Is it appropriate for a board member currently on the ballot to collect and count the ballots at the annual meeting? No, <laughs> it's not. You should have independent people doing that or your management company or your attorney doing that. Other residents, if you're desperate, other board members that are not running, but really try to have third parties, independent third parties doing that just for obvious reasons, because it looks bad. If you're counting, it looks, people could say that you fix the vote. Question 41 from a board member. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It saddens me that this will be my final first Friday question as a board member. Our annual meeting, and I'm going to miss working with you too. I know who this board member is, and I wish you the best of luck. But you can always tune back in as an owner, and I know you. I'm pretty sure at the new association you're moving to that you're going to get involved and be on the board there too. So best of luck to you. The final question for her is, our annual meeting is on February 26, and we will be seating a new board. I've been secretary for many years, and we'll be generating the minutes for this final annual meeting. My question goes to the board meeting following to elect officers. We have all new people who have not served on HOA boards coming onto the board. Am I legally allowed to sit in on that meeting to answer procedural questions and capture meeting minutes for them? Yes, because the board meeting that follows the annual meeting where you're electing officers is an open meeting. So you can sit in as a homeowner if you're not going to be on the board, and certainly you can add value as a former board member and help them through the process. One thing I'd like to recommend to you as you're passing the torch to the new board is make sure you let them know about our firm and all the resources that we have on our webpage. We have videos, short videos on the duties and responsibilities of board members. They all should be listening to that. They should be checking out our website and our cheat sheets. It will provide them with some valuable tools as they're navigating their time on the board. And I'm a phone call away. I know you're a client of mine, so make sure that you tell them that 
I'm here to help them in any capacity that they need me to help them on and tell them about First Fridays so that they can take advantage of that too. Question 42 from a board member. What do we need to do to have an owner tenant who has a visitor who brings a dog with them on a regular basis for those who only visit once? So let's see, what do we need to do to have an owner or tenant who has a visitor? Okay, I think what's happening here, maybe the question's kind of unclear. So I think what's happening here is maybe the you have a no dog policy and they have a visitor who's bringing a dog. And how does that work if you have a no pet policy? Well, if the visitor is just visiting and they're just dropping off something or they're coming to for a party, as long as the dog is leashed and they're picking up after the dog and the dog's not a nuisance or a dangerous breed, if it's a short visit, that should be fine. But if the visitor is staying overnight or staying for two weeks or coming for spring break and you have a no pet policy, you have a no pet policy and you need to advise the owner of, um, that the guest cannot bring a pet on the premises unless it's a service animal or an emotional support pet that would need to be supported by a doctor's note and approved by the board. Okay, next question from a board member. When items are left on common elements that are clearly violations, like a propane tank, among other things, with written warning, can the HOA remove those violation letter items that can be claimed by the owner in the complex warehouse? Yes. So I've had this situation before. So I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts on this. So yes, if they leave something on the common areas and you give notice that, hey, you need to remove this and they don't remove it. Of course, the board has the right to remove the item and place it in the warehouse. You should tell them that, hey, we've moved this and it's in the warehouse. You can come claim it if you want it back. I did have a case many years ago, like I'm thinking 20 years ago, where the board took a chair from a, it was a condo complex and the board took a chair from like the entryway of somebody's uh, condo and it was exterior of course it was a limited common element and it was like a balcony so the staircase went up and then the chair was there i think there were multiple units there and the owner went to the police and there were criminal charges filed for removing the chair so it's kind of sticky they were ultimately dismissed but it just was sticky to say the least. So try your best to work with the owner, have the owner come and pick up the propane tank. If you are going to have the board remove it, make sure you communicate clearly with the owner where the property is and how they can claim it. Next question from a board member, a homeowner requested to see the CCNRs prior to purchasing a home in our complex. The old management company sent the CCNRs minus the amendment stating that new owners couldn't rent the home, must be owner occupied. He bought the house and rented it. He learned from a homeowner that the house needs to be owner-occupied. How should the board move forward? Hmm, A couple of thoughts. I don't know how large your association is, but if your association is 50 or more units or lots, there should have been a disclosure statement that was prepared by the association and all of the association documents should have been provided to the buyer at that time. Also, the title company would have provided a full set of the CCNRs. The buyer should have had ample notice that there was no renting allowed and they may be trying to claim that an old management company sent them something minus the amendment but I'm not buying that because there are many other ways that they could have received a full copy of the CCNRs. And I don't really think that this is something that we can't enforce based upon this owner's new owner's claims that the former management company, blah, 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 didn't give them the records. I think this is enforceable. I think what I would do is I would check the records of the association to see 
how the disclosure statement was handled on behalf of the association and make sure that the correct CCNRs were provided to the buyer at the time. You also may want to check with the title company to see what was provided, but this seems enforceable to me. And it seems like we can require the owner to not rent their home. Okay, next question. We would like to have e-voting in our next election in July. Can you tell me what the first steps are to get the ball rolling? Okay, so we have a couple of publications on this that you may want to consider. I Let's see. Blog. Yes, we have a blog. Uh, thank you, Morgan. This is, is right here in my office with me, helping me um, with the questions as they come in. And she's my secret weapon. So we have a blog on this. So you want to go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And it talks about e-voting and how it's done. So a couple things for you to think about. Arizona law allows electronic voting for association meetings. Are you going to hire a company to come in and do it for you? I know there's like HOA Vote Now is one company that we've seen conduct elections recently and they do a good job. Um, but there are plenty of companies that are, are doing this online platform. A couple things you're going to want to think about are, is our association ready for this? So do we have owners that have access to internet and emails? Because typically what they do is they send out emails with the ballots. And how are we going to handle owners that may not have access to email or may not have internet? Are we going to do paper ballots for them? You know, see more about your community. I think I'm familiar with your community, actually, and I'm already working with your board, frankly, on this exact issue. So I think you're going to be fine. But this, the first steps to get this rolling would be to have your attorney take a look at this and see if it's even possible, which I've already done. And then the second thing is to reach out to companies that handle this and uh, get bids and uh, find out how their process works. And then the third thing is to find out which owners are opting in and which owners we have to you know, send the regular paper ballot to and how that might work. You know, We'll have to have the, the notice of the meeting is still gonna need to go out by paper format and be mailed under the statute to all owners. And it's just gonna be a special meeting because you're gonna to have to pre-think all of these things. And it's gonna be a different notice than you used last year. It's gonna be a different ballot than you used last year. And we're gonna to have to really determine who's gonna be able to vote electronically and who will need to send paper ballots to. So it can be done. And it, I think you'll find you have a lot higher participation if you do it e-voting. It's just, it's a transition year. So it's good that you're starting now if, if the election is in July. Okay, so reach out to our firm and we can help you through that process as you navigate it. Okay, next question from a, a board member. When a board member resigns, what are their responsibilities to keep previous board communications confidential? So if you serve on a board and you hear about confidential things in executive session, that responsibility to keep things confidential extends beyond your time on the board. But just general association business that, you know, any homeowner could have heard, of course, you don't have to keep that confidential after you resign from the board. You never had a responsibility to keep that confidential in the first place. Okay, last two questions. What about boards who use committees to circumvent open meetings by doing everything in non-regularly scheduled meetings and then show up and vote lockstep for things that have not been discussed in open meetings? Is there anything the minority board members can do about this when they are not allowed or notified of any of the committee meetings? Okay, a couple thoughts. So a committee meeting where a majority of the board is present is considered a board meeting. They can't be circumventing the law. If a majority of the board is meeting as in a committee and they're discussing association business, that's a violation of the open meeting law. 
if a minority of the board is meeting outside of the board meeting, whether it's in a committee meeting or a coffee or whatever, they have the right to discuss things outside of the meeting. That's a loophole in the law. And so if I was sitting in your circumstances, and it's interesting because you've indicated you're the president um, of your association. So I'm sure this is very frustrating. You're running the meetings. And so I would mention when they try to push things through like this, that this is the open board meeting. It's the appropriate time to discuss things. And I would mention that if a majority of the board is discussing things outside of the open board meeting, it's a violation of the open meeting law. And and just caution, if anybody is doing this, please be careful not to do that because it's against the law. If they're trying to push things through without voting, excuse me, without discussion, I mean, you're the president, you run the meeting. So there's a motion, a second, and then there's discussion. Make them rediscuss it. You want to make a good decision and you're the one that calls for the vote as the president. So you should be able to control this and have voting and discussion on the voting before the actual vote is taken. Okay, last question. And we're right on time. It's 10.30, so that's great. We got through the questions in an hour and a half. Hopefully this one's a quick one. Last question. A homeowner complained of a neighboring property operating a bright floodlight in their backyard. The light is penetrating the homeowner's home. This is against the CCNRs. The homeowner approached the offender in person without success. The homeowner submitted a picture of the violation of the HOA. The HOA sent the offender a violation letter that was ignored. What are the next steps? So I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more about why they need this floodlight. Have they been robbed? Is there like a safety issue in your association? Because we want to be careful about telling them they can't have it if that is the case, but they might be able to put a shield around it so that it's not so offensive to the neighbor or point it downward. I think this probably needs to be escalated to the association's attorney to open the dialogue with the offender, send a letter and get the offender to correct this violation. And obviously fines and threats of lawsuits are probably going to be what's going to get this situation turned around and, and rectified. Okay. Our closing remarks, we handled 48 questions today in an hour and a half plus two minutes. So thank you everybody for being here with us today for our firm's February virtual first Friday event. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I probably won't see you before Valentine's Day. We had over 75 people on Zoom and over 20 live viewers on Facebook. So almost hundred people with us here today, which is awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Just want to let you know, we have two free learning opportunities this for the month of February that you need to know about. Um, on Tuesday, February 15th, we have our firm's 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy class number two. Remember that um, we are doing the 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy in conjunction with a number of different cities throughout the Valley, their neighborhood services departments. So we hope you'll join us. And we're going to be talking about board member roles and responsibilities, everything you need to know if you're serving on your board. And the format of it is we'll be talking about this for an hour. We'll answer questions after the presentation live. So we hope you'll be able to join us for that on Tuesday, February 15th from 11 to 12 um, during your lunch hour, hopefully. Then the very next day on February 16th, I'm gonna be teaching a class on Zoom. Both of these classes actually that I'm talking about here are gonna be on Zoom after the Scottsdale Neighborhood College. And that's gonna be in the afternoon, one to three on February 16th. 
and the topic is HOA Finances 101. So we're going to be talking about budgets, reserve studies, financials, board member financial responsibilities, and how to prevent theft and fraud of association funds. So I hope that you'll join us for that class as well on February 16th. And as always, we're going to have our free question and answer at the end of that class as well. So for more information on our firm's upcoming events, please be sure to check out our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Go to our seminars tab, our upcoming seminars tab, and you'll be able to see a listing of all of our classes. We have our classes listed there now through June 30th. So everything that we're going to be doing over the next five months is going to be there. We hope that you will also continue to follow us on social media. We have a very active Facebook page. And continue to check our check out our webpage because we have our legislative update that's posted there every week and a lot of the great information for board members, homeowners, and managers. So we hope to see you later this month on the 15th and 16th for our classes. Thanks for being here today. Have a great weekend and happy Valentine's Day a little bit early. Take care, everybody. Have a great weekend. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 